invite you to turn in the Word of God to Luke chapter 6 this evening, the Gospel of Luke, the sixth chapter once again as we continue through this Gospel. chapter 6, and we continue from where we left off, picking up at verse 27. We've gotten as far as verse 26, so we'll commence reading at verse 27, but we're still in the same context of the same message that the Lord is bringing. And so we'll read from verse 27 and read through to the end of verse 36 at this time. Luke chapter 6, let's hear the word of the Lord from verse 27 and give heed to the word. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and encourage us as we meditate upon it here tonight. Let's pray. Seek the Lord momentarily. Our Father, we're thankful that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Teach us what it is to wait upon the Lord. Help us as a congregation to learn to wait upon the Lord. When we have our anxieties, our cares, our troubles... To wait upon the Lord. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to thee. Lord, help us to learn this. How often we neglect the place of prayer, the opportunity to wait before God, and to cast all our burdens upon not only one who cares, but one who's able to make a difference. 
Help us tonight as we look at thy word to know much of the activity of the Spirit of God. May he descend upon us, not just for the benefit of thy people. We do pray that each one of them would be fed and encouraged, but also for those that are still without Christ, lost and in their sin. May it please thee to save them this night. So we pray for help granted in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue our study in Luke chapter 6, looking at Luke's record of the Sermon on the Mount. You will know that this is perhaps one of the most well-known sermons ever preached. That are there really any sermons more well-known than the Sermon on the Mount? Talk to the most illiterate in terms of the Scripture, and they most likely, at least in the West, have heard of the Sermon on the Mount. And yet, man's admiration of this sermon often clouds the significance of the words. This sermon is discerning, indeed cutting, if properly understood. It exposes all self-reliant religion. It helps us to see that those that know God, those that truly know God, understand their spiritual poverty their need for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the proper feeling towards sin, that is, that they mourn over it, and their willingness to accept that the world will reject them if they are indeed belonging to the Lord. You look back at verses 20 through 23 of Luke 6, and we've covered that already. But most of this is internal. These things are internal in the sense that they're not always discernible to others. It's it's not always our place to be even able to discern how one feels about their own sense of poverty, spiritual poverty before God. How do we know that someone truly is poor in spirit? How do we really know that someone has a sense of hunger for Christ within their soul? Am I to gauge that merely by your presence here tonight? Should I look at every one of you and then just come to the conclusion, you're here, you must have a hunger for Christ. Or do you know as well as I do that that's not sufficient? How am I to discern, how are any of us to discern that people are truly mourning for their sin? How are we able to know whether they are willing to be cast off for their commitment to Christ, to be hated, to be separated from, to be considered evil for the Son of Man's sake, verse 22. Um, How are we to know? These things are not always discernible to the one that looks on. And so while it is very searching, and we read these words, and I trust as we have gone over them and dealt with them, that God has exposed even to ourselves, every one of us here, something of the, the sharpness of the language and the need to examine our own hearts, yet it is mostly internal, and that's its limitation. And so Christ then turns his attention to what the outward life of the genuine believer looks like in verses 27 and following. And again, it is exposing. It is illuminating. It is designed again to cause us just to stop, hesitate, and and question, is this true of me? 
And that's intentional. The Lord is not in the business of just making everyone feel good in order to get a hearing. He speaks the truth and he does so in love. And the intention always is to help. And that's what this sermon does. It helps. It removes. It, 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 it deals with any kind of religiosity that is, is a cloak to the sinner who has yet to truly understand what the gospel is. The language is, is designed to be dividing, creating a distinction. And we presented the context to you already in verse 20 when he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And those disciples are, are not just the twelve, they are the, the general company of his disciples referred to in verse 17. This company, this greater number of those that were following the Lord Jesus Christ, he is looking at them. And he knows that in their in that company there is there are many that don't get it yet. And externally it looks like they're interested in Christ, and we might say they are interested in Christ, and they're following and they're showing that interest by their allegiance to Christ externally. But this sermon, this message is very illuminating, as we've said already. It cuts to the core, it exposes the false. And we've already seen how it does that in terms of our inner examination of ourselves. Looking at our hearts, seeing whether we have this sense of poverty, we're not relying on ourselves, a a hunger for Christ and a mourning over our sin and so on. But when you get to verse 27, it becomes very much more external. The earlier verses are how you view yourself. Verses 27 and following are how you view other people, especially your enemies. You might as well put the test where it's hardest. How do you view your enemies? How do you view those that it is natural for you to be distant from, negligent of? How do you view them? This this brings it right down to how we conduct ourselves. And I think it's... I can almost say, though this is more preacher meditation on it, (laughs) and whether or not this is so might be debated, but I might say that this is necessary. It is necessary for Christ to deal with this. Think for a moment to those of a particular disposition who are looking for ways of proving to themselves that they are the Lord's when they're not. Think of how they might take the language, especially of verses 22 and 23. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. You you take that and you think, well, well then how, how am I to be identified as a genuine believer? Well, if people hate me. And there are people foolish enough, and so desirous to find some evidence and prove to themselves that they belong to the Lord, that they will do all that they can to make sure that at least this is fulfilled in their life. They'll make enemies of people. They'll go around desiring to fashion their lives and their conduct in such a way as to actually make enemies with the world wallowing in a state of self-pity, encouraged that the rejection they experience is a mark that they're genuine. Oh, I must be genuine because people hate me. 
I, I belong to the Lord because people are against me and they separate from me and they cast out my name as evil and so on. Well, I must therefore be the Lord's. <laughs> there are people, there are people silly enough, foolish enough, daft enough to do that. And the Lord blows apart any possibility of doing that by referring and dealing with how the true believer conducts himself with people. How does he live before the world? How does he communicate with the world? How does he relate to the world? What way does he live his life? And if someone is continually in a, in a manner, in a conduct of driving people away from themselves, deliberately in order to try and make themselves feel more like a Christian, maybe that's not their motive, but that's, that's how they console themselves when they find themselves isolated. They're not trying to drive people away, but their conduct and their manner is such that they drive people away, and then, and then they kind of come back as, well, this is what the Lord said was going to happen. But the whole time, if they truly examined their own lives in light of verse 27 and following, they would see that they aren't living, they are not conducting themselves in the way the Christian ought. As I say then, I, I think the language of verse 27 and following is nearly a necessity. A necessity to make sure no one comes to that odd conclusion that I'll treat people ill so that I'm assured of the fact that I'm a Christian. You see, verse 27, how it begins. I say unto you which hear, the Lord Jesus was a true preacher. What I mean by that is, he knows that not everyone in front of him hears what he says. There's a crowd before him. But there's no assumption that everyone is hearing. Now, what I mean by that is, he may be able to assume that everyone can hear the words, they hear the sound of his voice, but that's not what he's dealing with here. It is a recognition that in any crowd, there are some who hear and some which do not. They can hear the words. They can follow the argument. To one, in one sense, they're with the preacher. But in another sense, they are not hearing what he says. They're not receiving his words. And this is how he continues. We're thinking then tonight, and we'll just really be making a start on this, and we'll take another week at least to finish this, but the heart of Christian ethics, the heart of Christian ethic, or the heart of the Christian ethic, as we have it here expressed in verse 27 and following the verses that we read. And I want us to see, first of all, the description of love. Love, of course, is the foundation ethic that he presents to his people. And it is elaborated upon here in a way that is quite remarkable. When God made man in his image, when he stamped 
his own image upon man, in that image he also gave to him certain what we call communicable attributes. Attributes that are existing in God that are communicated to those made in his image. Love is one of them. Goodness. Truthfulness. These are all reflected in humanity. We understand what they mean. We don't understand eternality. We don't understand omniscience. These things are beyond us. But we do understand these. God has so communicated them to us, and we reflect them in our lives and to the world around us, so we we get it, we, we understand. And after the fall, we might argue that God had plenty of reason to destroy mankind utterly and totally, and if it was not for the mediatorial role of Jesus Christ, that is what should rightfully occurred. Man should have been wiped out, destroyed instantly. But Christ, as he lives on behalf of his elect, preserves the world, spares it the final judgment, because he wills that not any of them should perish, but all should come to repentance. So God then, we might say, treated man after the fall in a better way than he deserves. Mankind by nature is the enemy of God. It's everywhere in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. We are by nature the enemies of God. And when you logically look at it, well, if they're enemies of God, then God should pour out His wrath upon them, judge them, damn them, and cause them to come to a position of ruination. But this is not what happens. He spares them the immediate experience of the wrath of God. He is merciful. And when we come to near the end of the passage we're dealing with, you'll see how how important that is as the Lord Jesus reflects that what he is communicating, what he is teaching, is sourced in what we see in our God. Go to verse 35. Love ye your enemies, do good, lend, hoping for nothing again, your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful." So what is being taught in all of this is an expression of that which we find in God. It is mercy. This portion is essentially reflecting mercy. That those who have been the recipients of mercy show mercy. In fact, that's it. You could summarize the whole passage in that way. What is this teaching? What is the heart of it? It's teaching this. Be merciful because you've received mercy. As God has been merciful to the world, not judging it, not damning it, not casting it all into hell with the devil and his angels, but sparing his wrath and being long-suffering towards men, that is the example. We are made in his image. We are to reflect his character. as to be seen in us as much as the grace of God will enable us. And so when we come to verse 27, he says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. (laughs) Be loving towards your enemies. It may be difficult for some of you to admit that you could ever have enemies, but if you do not have them as yet, then chances are you'll have them at some point. I'm not sure how you get through life Without them, certainly if you have a great aversion to having enemies, don't become a preacher. 
That will not help you at all. Or a politician, or basically any public servant of any description, anyone who stands before people. And the teachers here will understand that too. <laughs> it must have been so much easier whenever, before the internet. You know, you go on, I mean, I haven't, I'm not an expert in all of this, but I know that they have these websites now where you grade the teacher, and it's like publicly there, what te- how, how the students feel about each teacher. What an awful thing that is, you know, just one, one student who just takes an umbrage against you and doesn't like you for some reason, just can post it there online and say, this is a really bad teacher. Well, such is the world in which we live. It's good to be able to commit our way to God regardless of the comments of men. But we want to think about this before we even go any further. Love your enemies. What, what does that mean, love your enemies? Does it mean that we are to feel towards them as we feel towards our friends? Or to feel towards our enemies as we might feel towards those that we have a kinship with? I think an easy way to answer that is to first establish in our minds whether or not there are degrees of love in human relationships warranted by Scripture. Degrees of love. Does God expect us to show love or more love to some than others? Does he expect us to do that? For example, does God require that men love their wives more than any other woman on the planet? I think it makes it easier for us to answer. Of course. Of course he expects us to love our wives more than any other woman on the planet. The expression of a man's love for his wife is different than it is for any other woman. But is it also to be greater in degree, is he to love her, not just in a difference in terms of how he expresses that love, but actually the degree of that love? And again, we would say, yes, I think. I, I find it difficult practically to answer that no. No, no, it's, it's to, yeah, you could express it differently, but the degree of it is not different. I, I find that unrealistic. I don't think it's to be the way. Even in terms of Christ's love for the church and giving himself for it, is it different, a different degree of love than he shows to a world that he does show compassion to? No, I, I think God expects us to love our wives more, not just in expression, but in degree, than any other woman. What about our family? Are we to love them more than other families? I would say yes. That love will drive us to provide for them and serve them, first and foremost. What about God's family? Are we to love them more than outsiders? Yes. Galatians 6 verse 10, Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So we come back to the text. What does this love look like? Love your enemies. There are different ways of expressing love. There are different degrees of love, and I think warranted. So how do we fulfill this without kind of removing ourselves from actually what the text is saying? Because we could so reduce this down that it no longer looks like love at all. And that's not the point. While there are different ways of expressing love and different degrees of love, yet the Lord is calling for a true affection for those who are our enemies. It's not the same as it may be for others, 
but it is a true love nonetheless. John Calvin made a remark here on this that I think is helpful. He said, No man will ever come to obey this precept till he shall have given up self-love. And I was challenged by that. There's no way I can truly love my enemies at all unless first I've given up self-love. You see, it's self-love that wants to argue the case for the legitimacy of not loving someone else. It's a sense of self-justification. Arguing the case for myself that I don't have to love or show affection towards someone who is my enemy. That has to die. There has to be a crucifixion of that before you can ever begin to understand this. And especially live it out. Now, you read the language and you think about it. You consider it. I hope even in the reading of it, there's a challenge. Love your enemies. And I want you to think about this very carefully. I want you to understand because I think it's a real danger of not understanding what this is calling us to do. You may have some conflict with an individual. But that conflict is, is, a, is, is one where you might still say that person's not my enemy. They're not my enemy. I wouldn't call them my enemy, but there's, there's, there's strife there. And what you do sometimes in your treatment of people, what is human nature, and especially as you read a passage like this, is that you, you create a vacuum. So you love those that love you. Of course you do. You love them back. Just like everybody does, as the Lord showed. But then you go to the other end of the spectrum. You have those that are your enemies. And you think, yeah, I think I could do that. I could could love my enemies by the the Lord's help. I, I I could love them. I could show that love to them. But then there's this vacuum, this bit in the middle. Where we, we argue, well, well, but you don't understand what they did to me. And you don't know what I've gone through. And, 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 and there's, there's no way, no. And, and you try to you create this vacuum between an outright enemy where you think of the worst possible person on the planet. And you think, oh, I think by the grace of God I could show love to them. But you create a vacuum in your own experience. For your own experience to sit there where you justify your feelings towards another person. Very tempting. And very dangerous. When the Lord says, love your enemies, when he goes to the other end of the spectrum, he means everything, every relationship up to that. In the whole gamut, even to the point of being an enemy, love them. So if you have those people in your mind, you wouldn't call them your enemies, but you justify your lack of love towards them. You're playing. You're not living the Christian life, playing games with what the Lord calls you to do. The description then of love is given by the Lord Jesus more plainly. 
I think there's affection there, love your enemies. I wouldn't want to remove that. But then it is more clearly described. First, love is seen in what we do. It is seen in what we do. Do good to them which hate you. Do good to them which hate you. You to treat them the right way. One of the things that happens when people read this also is that they, they, they come to this and they think, and I read some commentaries and they were even saying this, that here's a new principle. This is all new. At least that was the sense of what they were saying. This is all new. But it's not. This is not new. The Word of God always taught this. Turn for a moment to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23. In terms of doing good to your enemy. Exodus 23. Verse 4. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden and wouldest forbear to help him, that's the ass that he's talking about there, thou shalt surely help with him. What the Lord does here is, is very interesting as far as a case kind of, not a case study, but an example of expression of love. He goes right to, if, obviously if you see your friends, ox or ass or whatever, going astray, your natural inclination is to go and get it and to help. It happens all the time in, in agrarian culture, agrarian context and communities. And the Lord is saying, but if you, if you see an animal that belongs to your enemy, it's not even talking about the treatment of your enemy, but even his, his animals. And, and I take from that, that that our natural inclination is to put more value on the humanity of the person than even on his belongings. But our love is to extend to him and what is his. So that where if we saw him, let's say, lying at the side of a ditch, if we saw him in trouble, there might be some sense of compassion drawn out to us and we would go and help our enemy. But it would be very easy for us to watch his livestock walk into the wilderness and away and just say, well, serves him right. And kind of remove ourselves from responsibility. So it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. That if we are to show love even for a creature belonging to our enemy, obviously then we are to love them as well. We are to show a sense of mercy towards them. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. You're not going to neglect duty. You have a responsibility to your enemy in how you treat him in this very practical way. So when you read the language of Luke chapter 6, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, you have it there right in Exodus 23 saying this was the way it has always been. Do good to those that hate you, those who are your enemies. 
We have it in other passages in the Old Testament. Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22. If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. A very important text in the whole context of what we're dealing with here. Leviticus 19, 18. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Now, the Jews misinterpreted these passages. They did. They took them and they twisted them for, uh, to apply them in ways that the Lord never intended them to be applied. They would become exclusively to their own little groups. Initially, it's just to the Jews. This, 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 is, this is dealing with the Jews. It would be an enemy or someone who hates you within the, the, the camp of Israel. And again, is that not what the Lord is saying? Leviticus 19, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So is the Lord not saying this is exclusively then for those who are in the camp of Israel? And this... As it developed, this idea wasn't then just exclusively to the Jews, but then each sect that would arise within Judaism would would begin to express it towards themselves. So the Pharisees would say, well, this really just applies to Pharisees. Or other groups would rise up and say the same thing. And so the Lord has to address this in Matthew 5. In Matthew's record of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43, he says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. You've heard that. In other words, this is what's being taught. This is what is being communicated by the spiritual leaders, that you shall love your neighbor, yes, Leviticus 19.18 says it, but you should also hate your enemy. Hate your enemy. This is the godly thing to do. Talk about drawing out of the text something that was never intended. There are many passages relating as to how they should deal with the stranger, the sojourner and the foreigner. And when they were dealing with them, they were to keep in mind, because many of the passages say this, they were to keep in mind how God had delivered them from Egypt. Remember that thou wast a bondman. In all your dealings with others, remember that you were a slave. But they twisted it. And the Lord Jesus is giving the truth. Do good to them which hate you. Do good to them. Do good to them. Remove the latter part. Again, I think, I think we're, we, we can be guilty of doing this. I will do good to them which hate me. But what about those who you don't have many dealings with? What about those that you don't have a, much of a relationship with? Can you get away not doing good to those that you don't really know? Can you talk about people? 
And because there's a certain distance between you and them, you can talk about them, criticize them, destroy their character, make them look as in, in the poorest light possible, simply because you don't really know them. Is that doing good to them? Is your aim to do good to them in that? Oh, you may argue, well, I'm being discerning. I'm helping the church here. I'm doing good to the church. But are you doing good to them? Does faithfulness to Christ require that we publicly expose and bash everyone that differs from us without any due process? Is that doing good to them? Oh, but they're not my enemies. But this is my point. <laughs> this is my point. It is up to them, up to being an enemy. Even if they're not an enemy, it's, it's the whole gamut. This is how you're to treat people. Simple, like that. This is how you treat people. You love people and you do good to them to the extent even that they are enemies and hate you. They don't have to be enemies. They don't have to hate you, but this is how you treat people. You do good to them. And so much of the behavior that sometimes goes on in the church flies right in the face of this basic passage. We don't do good to people. Romans 12, 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. Again, the context is evil has been done for it to you. Don't do it back. That's the extreme again. It's, it's the enemies. It would be folly then to say that I can do evil to someone who didn't do evil to me. <laughs> Surely we can't argue that. Again, the extreme is this. Even if a man does evil to you, don't recompense evil to them. That's not doing good. Do good to them, which even hate you. Love is seen in what we do. So how do you treat people? How do you treat people? Are there those individuals in your life, maybe presently, maybe in the past, possibly, may arise in the future, those individuals that you will try, you will try to circumvent the implications of this text. Jesus says, you don't belong to me. This whole passage is discerning who really belongs to Christ. There is the inward, the internal, then there is the outward. How we deal 
with people. And it is very clear. Love is not just seen in what we do. It is seen in what we say. Bless them that curse you. Bless them that curse you. That is to say, invoke blessings upon them. In some contexts, it would be desiring their prosperity. Bless them. It is so... We read these words. How often do we fall short? Someone curses you. It takes every fiber of strength and dependence upon the grace of God to bless them. Again, see what it's saying. It's not saying ignore them that curse you. The natural thing is to curse those that curse you. Some of us are are, are able to get beyond that and ignore them, those that curse us. Ignore them. I'll just ignore them. That's not what the Lord says. He says, bless them. Desire their prosperity. Anyone ever wronged you? Do you ever have those thoughts in your mind that really are desiring bad or ill for them? I have. Those thoughts. Those feelings. They cannot be fed. They will destroy your soul. And it's not enough just to say, I'm ignoring them, therefore I'm, I'm fulfilling the text. I'm doing what the Lord would have. I'm ignoring them. No. Bless them. Desire the best for them. Long that God would pour out His bounty upon them. <laughs> That's what the Lord is calling us to get to. This, this, see, but, but this is extreme. That's the point. That is the point. This is completely counter to nature. That's what he's arguing later when he says, you know, those who do good to them, they do good back to them. All of this. This is, this is natural. This is how people conduct themselves. Even the heathens do this. I'm not asking you to be normal. I'm asking you to be extraordinary. I'm asking you to manifest grace. I'm asking you to show the mercy you've received from God. That is what I'm asking you. Is it uncomfortable? Is it hard? Yes, that's the point. This is, this is the supernatural power of grace. This is a soul who has no longer any claims to his own pride. He's no longer trying to lay, lay hold upon how good a person he is and, and trying to, to, to exalt himself. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he's in the dirt. He doesn't have any high floating ideas about himself. And then what he manifests to the world is what God has shown to him. And it doesn't make any sense to the world. Bless them. And so they 
other writers of the New Testament, they, they pick up on this. Paul writes in Romans 12, 14, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. <laughs> Again, he emphasizes it. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. That's where you're inclined to go. You want to curse them. No, don't do that. Bless them. 1 Corinthians 4.12 Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being reviled, we bless. This is what we are to do. And Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3 Verse 9, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing. Go to the opposite, not to the middle. Don't go to the middle, ignoring, accepting, hoping it'll just disappear, but actually bless them. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Yes, because this passage will deal with the reward. It will. And this comes up then in other New Testament passages, how we will be rewarded because of how we live. Verse 35, look at Luke 6, 35. Love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. This is faith now. This is faith working. It is unbelief. It is unbelief that will not take the Lord at His word will manipulate the text, will express the Christian faith in a way that is different to this, that's unbelief. It is faith that says, okay, I'm taking what the Lord says, if I'm understanding it correct, this is what He requires of me, this is what I'm going to do. And I will be rewarded, though maybe not in the immediate, but I will. It will bring honor to His name, and this is what He desires. This is so important. It's very exposing. And then we have, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Pray for them which despitefully use you. Those who misuse the relationship, those that turn their back on you, those that mistreat you in any form, Again, don't ignore them. Obviously, don't treat them the way they've treated you, but also don't ignore them. It's not, it's not about just ignoring them. It's about praying for them. Praying for them. I'm not the first person to say this. Uh, it's been said many times. But if you have a problem with someone... Or someone has a problem with you and the whole thing's nagging in your mind, bothering you. It's amazing what bringing that person before God will do. Praying for them. Naming them. Desiring God's favor for them. Not just in what you say to them, but actually bringing all your emotional conflict and how hard you feel it to be to live out this text and telling the Lord and asking for a change of your own heart. How the Lord can just change your whole frame of mind and way of thinking. That you can have someone treat you ill, and I have been there, 
and it's in your mind, it is filling your mind, and it's all you can think about, and you're upset, and you're annoyed, and so on. And then I have, on at least two occasions, that I remember distinctly, I have gotten at the end of the day before the Lord, and I have said, Lord, when I wake up in the morning, I don't want to be bothered by this. I don't want to be feeling the way I'm feeling, thinking the way I'm thinking. I want you to just, to just take it all away. I can't go through tomorrow or any further length of time thinking the way I'm thinking, struggling with what's happened. I'm leaving it here. When I wake up in the morning, please don't let it be in my mind. And the Lord answers prayer. One of the occasions, in fact, the first time I ever prayed that, <laughs> I was really upset about something. And I wasn't so much angry at any particular person, but just kind of angry with the way a thing had been done and so on and so forth. And the, the context of it was, was very kind of hard to take. And that's, that was the first time I prayed that way. And our Lord, when I wake up in the morning, I don't want to think about it. I want it gone. Lift this burden. And I woke up, and I, it didn't even cross my mind till the afternoon. I woke up in the morning, got, around, got to my business. It didn't even cross my mind until the afternoon. And I was like, huh, <laughs> wow, the Lord actually answered that prayer. I woke up, the burden wasn't there. I didn't even think about it until halfway through the day. Now, you can carry your own burdens. You can, you can do that, or you can cast your cares upon him and trust that he'll take them. Love is seen in what we pray. Love is seen in what we pray. Pray for them which despitefully use you. Now, one of the questions, of course, that's often asked when you read something like this is, well, what about the imprecatory psalms? Those psalms that you read where there's a desire for judgment upon enemies. What about that? Can we not utilize the prayers of the psalms and apply them in our own context and and pray in the way we find David praying? Well, there are reasons to be careful with the imprecatory psalms and praying them over our enemies. And I'll give you a few of them. I'm not against, like absolutely against praying the imprecatory psalms, but I put before you reasons just to be a little more cautious than perhaps you have been or you might tend to be. First reason is that David was a king that reflected many truths about the Messiah, especially in the psalms. And one might argue that his imprecatory psalms as king of Israel reflect the prayers of Christ and his kingly role. It is a position of authority, a position of where he has the right and the responsibility to view things in this way. Secondly, praying thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is essentially a prayer against the advancement of any evil endeavor. Thy will be done on earth. You're praying against it, generally. You're asking for the advancement of Christ's kingdom and what is right and good, which necessitates the suppression of evil. Thirdly, 
The third reason, when persecuted, the apostles prayed in Acts 4.29, Lord, behold their threatenings. They didn't pray that God would destroy them and wipe them out and annihilate them and all kind of language that we have reflected in the precatory psalms. Lord, behold, you look at what they're saying, Lord. You see what they say. And that was as far as they went. See what they're saying and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. What had the enemy said? Stop preaching in this name. Stop doing this. And instead of saying, Lord, destroy them, wipe them out, annihilate them, simply you look at them and give grace to your servants to disobey their word and obey your word to preach the gospel. To continue on in the vein that they've been on. A fourth reason why we must be careful with imprecatory psalms is that when persecuted, Stephen prayed, Acts 7.60, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. If ever a man could have said, Lord, pour out your wrath on them as he's being murdered for the cause of Christ. But he didn't. Lay not this sin to him. It's his sin. I'm not saying it's not sin. He's not redefining what they're doing. It is sin, a grievous sin indeed. But lay not this sin to their charge. What Christ is dealing with in Luke chapter 6 are personal attacks and offenses. It's when you're being dealt with and experiencing this in your personal life, it does not remove the responsibility of the courts of the church or the state. They are not immediately to adopt this philosophy. Well, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just bless and set free and, and do everything that the lawbreakers want us to do. Just allow them to carry on with their evil. No, that's not it. Neither in the church nor in the secular court. There has to be a place for judgment. There's a place for eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That is right. And again, this comes down to on what basis are we relating with people? If you're a king, you have an obligation to deal with lawbreakers in the way that you should. But if this person's your neighbor living next door, it's completely different. You have no authority to execute judgment upon their head. It's the same for a father. How a father relates to his children is different than how he relates to all other children. He will take his children aside. He will discipline them. He will instruct them and teach them in a way that he has no right to do with other children. And he knows it. Inherently, he knows it. It's not to say that he can't give a word of even rebuke to another child in a certain context, but that he feels the weight of a greater responsibility to his own children. That's legal, that is right, that is proper biblical government at play. But when you're on an, an even playing field, when it is someone, you're not their king, you're not a government over them, you're not a judge, you're not a church officer and they're members of a church. You don't have that kind of authority structure in play. This is how you deal with relationships. This is how it works. Even Christ. He did pray, did he not? On the cross, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. But when all men stand before him as judge... He will not pray that way. The full weight of the law and the wrath of God 
will come upon the heads of men. So, I say unto you which hear, I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. Everyone, everyone in the world, up even to your enemy, you're to love them. I don't care who they are. You're to love them. Personal relationships, you're going to show the love of Christ. You're going to show the mercy. And this is what, again, keep it in context. I'm not pulling this out of context. The whole context of this, the the driving factor that the Lord is looking for you to reflect is found in verse 35 and 36. By doing this, ye shall be the children of the highest For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. As his children you shall reflect the mentality of your Father which is in heaven. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. You can argue and twist and you can try to say, well, what about this, applying this in this context and that context? And I'm sure I have not covered every ground. I'm sure that there's someone here tonight who's thinking about something that I have not addressed but I want you to bring it all under this light. Are you being merciful as you've received mercy? Aside from the responsibility of certain levels of government and authority as parents to children, as church leaders to members of the church, as those who are judges in a secular court to those who stand before them, Aside from different authority structures that God has put in place, when we're dealing with people, are we showing mercy as we have received mercy? Am I loving? Am I doing good? Am I blessing? And am I praying for them? It's not easy, I'll tell you that. (laughs) The only person that finds this easy tonight is the person to whom it doesn't immediately apply. (laughs) There's no one in your mind, there's no particular tension in your life right now, there's no challenge of the circumstances here that apply. You're, you're, You're kind of drifting, oh, that's interesting, I'm enjoying that sermon, you know. But if you're in the middle of it right now, you know, you know how hard it is. And it is tough. It's tough to see the wrong that is being done. It's tough to to process the evil and the injustice. It's it's not easy. And the natural inclination is to rise up and cry for justice. Cry out for fairness. And Jesus says, not if you're the children of our Father. Be merciful. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. There are those of you here tonight, and you don't know the Lord, you're not saved. No point in trying to pretend or act like that's not the case. You know it. And the only reason you're continuing to live 
and breathe at this moment is the mercy of God. Have you thanked him for that? Are you thankful for the mercy you've received from the hand of God? How thankful are you? Are you thankful enough to look at the cross and see there God's answer for sinners, God's remedy for your sin, and to bow before that cross in humble acknowledgement that there is the only answer for you as a sinner? That every day you go on rejecting Christ is a day you go on testing the mercy of God. Every day you reject the Son of God is a day you cast aside and take for granted the mercy of God. May the Lord help you get to Christ tonight to cry out, to confess your sins and seek the Lord. God and Father, we are challenged by thy word. What a difference with the church. What a difference the church would be. Thy people, how they would look if we really got a grapple on this passage. I pray for Christ's sake that thou wilt help us Thou wilt graciously help us to live out what Thou hast called us to be. Oh, that we would be identified as children of our Father. So different to the children of the devil. In every difficult circumstance, when we're confronted with those that oppose, hate, use, and are in any way against us, give us so much more grace that we will overwhelm them by how we respond. Bless our fellowship, our conversation to those that will talk with one another before they leave. Bless the food also provided for those that go downstairs. May there be an enjoyable time there as well. O God, our Father, go with us to our homes. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.